God bless you guys. Good morning. Good to see you. Grab your Bibles, Revelation chapter 3. And, um, you know, these have been, um, the, going through these, um, these seven uh, messages, the seven letters to the seven churches has been, uh, a, it's a weighty thing. It's been hard. Uh, there's a lot of hard-hitting stuff. And we just have three of these letters left to go. Um, and uh, this one's a tough one. I, I'm just going to let you know up front, this was a tough one. And we're going to start, I'm just going to put a word up on the screen. It'll give you an idea of where we're going today. But the word is hypocrite. So yeah, so yeah we're going there. Uh, this morning. And the word hypocrite, I want to talk a little bit about the word, the origin of the word, came into English uh, from uh, ancient Greek, and Greek is the language of the New Testament, the New Testament was originally written in. So hypocrite came in English from Greek. We define the word in English quite negatively, but the original word in Greek was not so negative. So in English, of course, we, we define it as one who pretends to be something they're not. That's kind of a basic definition, one who pretends to be something they're not, uh, for example, uh, this might be a person who projects to everyone that they're a very moral person, like I have these high moral standards, but really behind the scenes, they're committing various kinds of immorality uh, in their life. And, and of course, it's, it's awful to be called a hypocrite. It's awful to call someone a hypocrite. It's awful to be a hypocrite. Now, as I said, the original word comes from the Greek. It comes from the Greek word for actor. So it's not, a, it's not a negative word in the original Greek. It's just the word actor. So like in the, you know, back in ancient Greek, the, the ancient Greek Academy Awards, they would have the best female hypocrite award and the best male hypocrite award. You, you tracking with me? So that, that would be, it was just, it was the word for actor. In fact, if you take your phone, and I know some of you have your phone open right now, but if you, if you were to open a text message and just type in the word theater, you're gonna see an emoji pop up that you can choose there. And that emoji is the two-faced um, emoji that stands for actors, acting, theater, all, all of this. Because in Greek theater, actors wore masks. One actor would play various roles. In fact, here's uh, some samples of some. Those are like particularly evil looking. I get that. And I, 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 I thought about not using them uh, this morning. But anyways, um, these would be ancient Greek masks. It would have been used in theater. And a single actor might have played multiple roles in the play, in the performance, and would put the various masks on to de depict these various, these various roles. Now, this fits our definition, our modern English definition of hypocrite, because a hypocrite is wearing a figurative mask, pretending to be something that they are not. They're acting. So I could give a couple of examples here. And by giving these examples, please understand, I'm not saying that every single person in the category that I'm talking about here is a hypocrite. Not saying that, everybody okay with me here? Okay, not saying that, but often when we think hypocrite, we might think politician. You with me? Not every politician's a hypocrite, but often we would think of it that way. Or, or I'll be fair, preachers right? Some preachers projecting something they're not, wearing a mask behind the scenes, not what they're preaching. Or, to be fair, church members. We'll just even things up here. There are some church members who are projecting things that they are not. They're actors. Or, ironically, Hollywood actors can be actors. It's like Inception. It's a little bit, it's like an actor within an actor, a hypocrite within a hypocrite. 
I mean, there's nothing like a Hollywood actor flying in their private plane to some environmental protest. I mean, there's just, I mean, I just love the carbon footprint there, right? So I love that they're preaching to us, but there's a hypocrisy attached to all of that. Now, listen, all of that's fun to talk about. All of that is relevant to today's passage because Jesus says in his letter to the church in Sardis, this comes in the, in the latter part of verse one, I know your works. I am intimate. Jesus is saying to them, I am intimately acquainted with everything about you, what you're really like. The fact that Jesus just says, I know your works should keep some people in this room up at night. Should keep some of us up at night. I know your works. I know all about you. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. You're wearing a mask, Sardis. You're playing a part. You're playing the part of alive, but you're actually dead. You're pretending to be something you're not. Playing the part of fully alive Christians, but you are not. And we live in a time today of rampant hypocrisy. And one of the best examples of that is social media. Because we are regularly, those of us who are active in social media, regularly posting things, very often in a hypocritical way, projecting ourselves to be something we are not. That's the very premise behind filters on Instagram. I'm projecting something that I am not. And Jesus is calling that out in us today through this letter to the church in Sardis. And the question is, will we hear him? Will we, will we listen to what he has to say uh, to us? And so let me read that. It's the first six verses of chapter three. I'll read this and then we'll start to unpack uh, the passage together. Revelation 3.1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and what you heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." All right, on the screen and in your notes, you're going to see this. Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, exposes our hypocrisy. And so we have to give attention. We must be giving attention to remedying this because hopefully you, like me, don't want to, I don't want to be an actor. I don't want to be a hypocrite wearing a mask. And so notice verse 1 that these are the words of him. Jesus is dictating these letters. These are the words of him who has the seven spirits of God. Earlier in the book of Revelation, we saw that this reference to the seven spirits of God is a reference to the fullness of the Holy Spirit. It takes us back to the Old Testament, the book of Zechariah. This is the Holy Spirit 
working with Jesus to bring about conviction in this church. Together with the Holy Spirit, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, which are the angels of the churches. We talked about that earlier in the series. The angels of the churches are either guardian angels, spiritual beings who are assigned to each local church to protect it, the whole idea of guardian angels, or it's a reference to the lead pastor or pastor of the church, or it's a reference to the messengers that carry these letters. And we're not really sure which of those it is, but in any event, Jesus with the Holy Spirit and these seven stars are the authority, are the sovereign one, sovereign. He is the sovereign one over the church. He has the authority to speak into this situation. And together with the Holy Spirit, whom Jesus had promised in Acts chapter one, at his ascension, he's ready to ascend into heaven. He says, I'm going to send the comforter. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter two, day of Pentecost, Holy Spirit comes. The church moves in power. By the time you get to the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Corinth in chapters 3 and 6 of 1 Corinthians, we see that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And the we in chapter 3 refers to the church as a whole is the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit resides here. In chapter 6, here, this is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Individually, the Spirit resides in me. And when I understand this, that Jesus has authority and the Spirit is in the church and in me, we understand how he's going to work and how the power of the Holy Spirit is going to bring about the kind of hearing and repenting that is necessary. And so as with that locked in, that first verse locked in, then we look here, Jesus through the Holy Spirit exposes our hypocrisy. So we must first acknowledge the problem. The church in Sardis had a problem. We have a problem. We need to acknowledge that problem. We need to look at what Sardis was dealing with and ask ourselves the questions, are we dealing with these issues ourselves? This matter of acknowledgement or confession is rooted in our relationship with Jesus Christ. In fact, you might know the verse Romans 10, 9. Part of that verse says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. We have to confess with our mouths that Jesus has authority, that he is Lord. Paul reasons in that verse, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that it is with the mouth one confesses and is saved. We have to acknowledge the problem. And this is the first part of genuine repentance, is that we agree with God about these things. We agree with God that sin is sin and that we are sinners. But most importantly... It's not the confession about us, but it's the confession about him. That we confess that Jesus is Lord. And if that is true, if Jesus is Lord, if you have confessed that, if Jesus is Lord, you are not Lord of anything. You are not sovereign over anything. You don't have control over anything as a follower of Christ. Because in this moment, when you confess Jesus Christ, you are pledging your loyalty to him for all eternity. And when you make a pledge like that, that has implications for every aspect of our lives. And if you're still fighting God on what constitutes sin, if you're still fighting God on who calls the shots in your life, then you will remain as you are, unsaved, 
or at best, a hypocritical Christian wearing a mask. Something that Jesus wants to call out. So the problem in Sardis is this hypocrisy. They're giving the impression to everyone that they're alive when in reality this church is dead, all but dead. This church, this is, this is the kind of church we see all the time. This church has a full staff. This church has lots of people coming on Sundays. This, this church has a full roster of ministries, all of which you can read on their beautiful website. They have active social media. By all accounts, the church in Sardis has it going on. All the outward signs of being a great church. But afflicted with spiritual lethargy. And so appropriately, he calls on the church, verse 2, to wake up. Wake up! In fact, the word uh, could also be translated, be watchful, be aware of what's going on around you. You cannot be alert and watchful, though, if you're asleep. So the command is, wake up. Take note of what's going on around you. And if you're a parent who have still small children and you, you bring um, a babysitter in, you want the babysitter falling asleep. You want the babysitter awake to take care of your kids. If your company hires a security guard, you want that security guard in the security room watching all of the cameras all the time, not dozing on the job. If you're the passenger in a car, you want to make sure that the driver is alert, not tired, not head bobbing down the highway. Wake up. This church was asleep. It was unconscious, actually, to the fact that they were not living an active a representation of the Lord that they actually were declaring their allegiance to. We're for Jesus, but then they really weren't because they were asleep. Now, it wasn't all bad. There was just the slightest hint of life in this church, a little sliver of hope that they could actually turn this around Wake up, he says, and strengthen, shore up, stand it up on its feet, make sure it's secure, strengthen what remains. So something was there. What remains? There's a little bit, a little remaining hope, a little bit of life. Strengthen what remains. But Jesus says, it's about to die. Better act on this fast because it's about to die. Think about those campfires you have. And at one point it's roaring, but then when you're done with it for the night, you let it burn down and burn down and burn down. And you're just down to a few little embers and just a little glow. It's about to die. It's going to go out. If you want that fire rekindled, you're going to have to put more wood on it or it's going to die. And this church was about to die. And he adds, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Not completely dead and buried, but definitely on life support. Incomplete at best. Now, if there is a problem of spiritual lethargy or, or flat-out hypocrisy in, in any of your lives, it cannot be solved, and you will not be in a good place with God until you acknowledge the problem. 
You have to actually say, God, I admit I have been spiritually lethargic. I have been dragging myself through my Christian life or go all the way to say, you know what? I have put a mask on this morning. I'm wearing it right now. I'm projecting something about myself spiritually that is absolutely not true. Now, if you're at that place where you know that that's something that needs to be dealt with in your life, you are now faced with several options for how you're going to deal with that. Option one, continue to live in denial. Nah, it's not that bad. It's not that bad. Other people are worse. I'm, I'm, it's not that bad. I'm just going to live in denial. God's not really going to take it that seriously. I'm just going to go on with my life. Some of you will have decided that before you even get to the parking lot. Or B, here's another one, make excuses. No, I am feeling spiritually lethargic for sure, but you know, the last two years. Last two years have been hard, you know. Or, or this has been going on in my life where you don't know who I have to live with. Or you don't know about my job. You don't know what I'm dealing with spiritually. Or, or you don't know what I'm dealing with physically. So just make excuses. Or, or this, is a, this is a big one today. Or I just reinterpret the Bible so it says what I want it to say so I don't feel any guilt. I mean, this is huge today. There are so many people now who are just going like, oh, I know that's what that meant then. I don't think it means that today. I mean, this church in Sardis, I mean, it's like 1900 years ago. It's not really for us today. Reinterpreting the Bible is a big thing today so that we can get out of these implications of declaring Jesus as Lord. Or here's, here's another one, D, make someone else the problem. Well, I'm, I'm, in this, I'm in this difficult place spiritually because of this other person and you don't know what they did to me. You don't know how they are. So I'm playing, I'm playing the victim card. I'm pushing it off on someone else. They're the problem. Or if all else fails, just switch to a different church that isn't preaching Revelation. That would work. Just, just go to a church that's going to preach easier stuff and make you feel better about yourself. They're out there. Or you could acknowledge the problem as a necessary first step. And then, secondly, look at this, return to the gospel. Return to the gospel. The Christian life isn't actually that complicated. I mean, it's complex in the sense that we worship this infinite God who is quite a bit other than us, and, and that our salvation and all of that are rooted in the mysteries of God, and we're going to see that even as we work through Revelation, that there's a lot about God that's like so mysterious. Complex, but not complicated. We're sinners. He's holy. Something needs to be done to bring us back into relationship with him. Otherwise, we're going to hell. I mean, that's not complicated. Jesus simply says, in order to wake up, in order to stop being a two-faced hypocrite, you need to, verse 3, remember what you received and heard, keep it and repent. There it is. And in fact, in that one little line, there's three imperatives or three commands for us to see. And if you're taking notes, if you have a pen in your hand or a highlighter, um, if you want to highlight um, in your, on your phone or iPad, here's the three imperatives. Remember, 
keep, and repent. Remember, keep, and repent. Those are the three. So, so question, let's, so let's work through this. Question one is, what are we supposed to remember? Well, it's defined for us there. You're supposed to remember what you received and heard. And when we talk about receiving and hearing, built into those words is the idea of acceptance and obedience. So when I receive something, when I hear something and receive it, it means I agree with it and I'm, I'm, I'm seeking to live this out. I'm going to obey what it says. So it's not just hearing. It's not just receiving a message. It's, it's living it out, believing it. So we're supposed to remember what we received and heard. So the next question is, what did they receive and hear? And the answer is the gospel. What they received and heard was the good news message of Jesus Christ is the cross and the empty tomb. And so from this, we understand that the gospel must be central in our lives, not simply as the means by which we're saved. I'm saved as a result of hearing the gospel and responding to it. But the gospel becomes the transforming message in our lives for the rest of our lives on earth. It's the gospel that transforms our lives. It's the gospel that transforms our friendships. It's the gospel that transforms our workplace relationships and our marriages and our, and our parenting and all of it. It's the gospel at the center of everything. That we would be growing and changing as a result of hearing it and obeying it. Applied to every facet of our lives. Every breath we take impacted by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we remember, that's the first imperative. Remember the gospel, live that out. Then we also need to keep it. We're going to keep the gospel. And then we're going to repent, the third imperative, repent of all the areas of our lives that are not yet gospel-centered. Now, perhaps the best way to do this, because we would say, well, what's the best way for me to remember, keep, and repent? to keep this, the gospel at the center. And perhaps the best way to do that is building into our lives some habits that will help us do these three things to fulfill these imperatives of remember, keep, and repent. And over the last little while, we've been impacted here at the church by two wonderful books uh, written by two Toronto area authors. Um, and both of these books have a very similar uh, premise. And so uh, Daryl has written, Daryl Dash, uh, both of these um, authors have spoken here at the leadership series, by the way. Uh, Daryl um, has written Eight Habits for Growth. He's a pastor in downtown Toronto. Jen Pollock Michelle has written A Habit Called Faith. She attends a Grace Church uh, in downtown uh, Toronto. And, and both of these books essentially have the same uh, premise to them. Having good spiritual habits. Jen says, can be a backdoor into the faith. And so if you, if you say to an unbeliever, for example, if you're interested in the Christian life, I would invite you to come and see what's going on in our church and make church for a period of time a habit. Even though you're not a Christian, maybe you would just come, make this a habit. And as you develop this habit, as maybe you start getting into God's word and you start participating in the worship a little bit, that those habits are the means by which God draws you into a relationship with himself. Daryl would say for believers that if you have these habits, these will help you grow closer to God, to love him and to love others better. 
So the habits have applications for Christians and non-Christians in terms of drawing them closer to God. By the way, we put some links in the notes to these books and to some other resources related to uh, Daryl and Jen's uh, books that I know uh, would be super helpful if you want to track those down. Now, I want to say this, and, and they would both say this as well, that we want to be careful that the habits are not the ends. The end of this is not that we would do these habits. That's actually, the, that's just religion if we do that. Habits can be practiced and benefit no one. Again, that's the essence of most religions. It's, spot, it's a spot-on example of hypocrisy. I can throw a mask on, come to church every week, read my Bible every day, have a prayer life, be on a serving team, be in a small group. I can do all the things, all the habits, have them all, and be wearing a mask and be dead inside. The habits are not the end. That would be hypocrisy if that's all we had, but habits can also be a critical, are a critical um, means by which we understand our God better and a critical means for us uh, to be a growing in an ongoing way in spiritual vitality. So we need these habits. I'll talk more about them, specific ones in a moment, but this, this, is, this is the prescription. We have a problem which we've admitted to, the script has been written, this is the prescription, return to the gospel. Because if you're struggling with where you're at in the faith right now, or if you're new to all of this and you're searching out for some answers, if that's you, then the best recommendation that I can make is to put some of these habits in place that are gonna help you get there. Let me give you a few examples of these, and this is not at all an exhaustive list. I mean, Daryl had eight, I'm gonna give you four. The gospel is central in my life when I start or keep attending worship every week. When I start or keep reading the Bible daily. Now, if you miss a day, I miss a day. If you miss a day, you just pick it up the next day. You just keep going. It's not like, oh, I missed three days. I should just give up. No, no, no. Keep going. Just get back to it. Start or keep praying, even when I'm not sure what to say. I don't know what to say in prayer. Perfect. Get a prayer book. Get something that's going to help your prayers. Just say whatever you need to say to God. Just have a conversa conversation with Him. Or start or keep connecting with the community of faith. I'm going to say more about that in a little bit. These are habits that are going to help you get closer to the Lord. And even if you're not quite convinced, and if you're still fighting God on this, by exercising these habits, you're going to be rousing yourself. You're going to be waking yourself up. That's what Jesus is appealing to us about. Wake up. Now the reality is, not everybody wakes up at the same pace. I'm one of those people, I wake up. When I wake up, I bound out of bed. I'm that person. How many other people are like Todd here? Raise your hand if you're like a bound out of bed kind of person. Yeah, far fewer than the nine o'clock service. Not surprising. <laughs> My wife, however, I can talk about her today. She's in Chicago. She'll never hear this. 
My wife, my wife is, she doesn't bound. She doesn't jump out of bed. She wakes up. She's groggy. She takes a while. She rolls out of bed. She expects me to make her coffee. Because if she makes it, like she put unground beans into her cup last week. I mean, that's, she sent me a picture. She said, look how bad this is. You need to make my coffee. How many people are like Cheryl in this room? 90% of the 11 o'clock service, of course. That makes perfect, perfect sense. So some people bound out of bed. Some people will hear this message from Jesus, wake up. You're going to get it. You're going to bound up. You're going to say, I'm awake, Lord. I'm ready to repent. And some of you, I sort of get it. Just wait. I need a few more minutes. I got to think about it. Just let me lay here. And eventually you're going to roll around and hop out of bed and you're going to get it and you're going to wake up. And no matter how you come to it, no matter how you repent, no matter how you remember and keep it and repent, it's fine. Just be on the journey. Just be working with Jesus to wake up and to return to the gospel. And when we do, this is what's going to start to happen in our life. We're going to be in a place to anticipate his coming. That we're going to be eager for Jesus to show up because the reality is when you're wearing a mask, you don't want Jesus to come by. When you're suffering from spiritual lethargy, the last thing you want is for Jesus to show up in your life. We go back to chapter, or sorry, uh, verse 2, and we see him say, wake up. And now he says in, in verse 3 at the end, if you'll not wake up, if you're not going to do what I tell you to do, I'm going to come like a thief to your life. Two aspects to this thief analogy that he uses here, which is fairly common in the scriptures. First of all, when the thief comes, you get no prior notice. This is the main thrust of Jesus saying this. I'm going to come as a thief. You're not going to get any notice. I'm just going to show up. Burglars don't let you know when they're going to break into your house. It's not like a burglar knocks on your door and says, hey, I'm working the neighborhood, just trying to schedule some people in. How does, how does a week Friday work for you? It'd be best if you weren't home at the time. So if you could give me a time, I'll just write it in my calendar. But bur bur burglars don't do that. And Jesus says, no, you will not know at what hour I will come against you. That's the most common understanding of the, of the thief coming, but there's a second aspect to this that we don't think about. And in this particular context, it matters and is that, it's this, it's that a thief breaking in is something we want to avoid. Do you agree with that? We don't want a thief breaking into our house. We lock our doors. We have smart doorbells. We have motion sensor lights. We have alarm systems. We don't want people breaking into our house. And so we want to, we want to not only anticipate Jesus coming in the good sense of that, but... We want to avoid his coming in the bad sense of that. Luis Fanning, uh, who one of the commentators I'm using in this series, said this, the Christians in Sardis, Sardis must take heed and prepare themselves spiritually so that Christ's coming will not have that hostile character to it. Because that's what we're reading here. In fact, this, this whole 
analogy, this metaphor of the thief coming would have been of particular interest to the people in Sardis because this city was again like the other cities, but this one was so strategically placed. And if you read the history, so many of the great, like Xerxes and Cyrus and Alexander, all these uh, great conquerors through history, their armies went through Sardis. And on two such occasions in, occasions in history, there were besieging armies that had surrounded the city and they closed up the gates and they made sure that no one could get in. The besieging army was all around them. And twice, twice in history, the way that the besieging army won the city was a single lone soldier crept into the city and went and opened the gate. And the armies just came in and the city was taken. So when Jesus writes a letter to Sardis and says, I'm going to come like a thief, they go, oh, dang, that's happened to us twice before. Twice before someone crept in and opened the gate and the city was lost. We have to prepare similarly because what Jesus is saying here, what he's saying to Sardis is for us. There are some right here in the room and some watching on the live stream right now. You need to wake up. Some of you are being warned that if you will not wake up, Jesus is going to come unexpectedly to you and drop the hammer in your life. You sound, you, you might, you pause right now, you just say like, this doesn't sound like the Jesus I know. They're just, he sounds like he's threatening them. It sounds so threatening. And you would be correct. That would be perfect biblical interpretation. This is a threat. Or, if, I mean, if you prefer a gentler word, you could say warning. Jesus is warning them. But the weightiness and seriousness with which he say, says this, it, it makes this threat sound just like a threat. And as Fanning said in the quote, there is a hostile character to this. Now the context here, Revelation 3, this letter, is discipline and judgment for the particular issues in this particular church in Sardis. Most of the times in the scripture where we see the imagery of the thief coming and Jesus talking about this, Paul talks about it. Most of the times when we see this, it's about the final coming of Jesus, the, the global end of the age coming of Jesus, but that's not precisely what we see here in the church, in the letter to the church in, in Sardis. That said, the warning of the great judgment to come stands and the situation in Sardis is actually like a harbinger of that. That the little small judgment that's going to happen in Sardis is actually a picture, a harbinger of what's going to happen in the final coming of Jesus in the final judgment, because we are awaiting his return and he will come as a thief. It will seem sudden and unexpected to us. And if we're not right with him, we would wish it wouldn't happen. But practically speaking, here's the thing, we're talking about this anticipation of Christ's coming. But practically speaking, as Christians, we don't live as if we're really expecting him to come. I mean, if I could really just talk about myself for a few minutes, I don't feel like I'm living my life in such a way that I really, truly believe that Jesus could come back on Tuesday afternoon. But he could. 
I don't live my life, in fact, with this understanding that if, that if I'm a hypocrite, if I'm wearing the mask, if I'm, if I'm suffering from spiritual lethargy, that he could come individually to me and discipline me just as he was preparing to discipline the church in Sardis. There's so little anticipation of that happening in our lifetime. And we need to wake up to the reality of Christ's imminent return. And we need to live our lives accordingly. And part of that involves living now as part of the, what theologians will call the eschatological community or the, 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 the people of God anticipating Christ's return. And so we should be with faithful believers. You should get with faithful believers. And encouragingly, there were some in Sardis, it wasn't all bad, there were some in Sardis who were not wearing masks. They were not hypocrites. Jesus says, verse 4, you have still a few, there's a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. Now, Sardis was a center for the production of wool, and they would dye the wool and, and export it all over, uh, the, the, um, all over the empire. And so this is a big thing for them. The whole illustration of garments here is going to make sense to them because of the trade that went on in Sardis. And so were these, there were these people who had not soiled their garments by, by projecting one thing, projecting life, but really being dead. And Jesus confirms these, this small remnant, this few, he confirms their eternal status. He says in verse four, and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. And they were made worthy by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ himself. They were not made worthy by their spiritual habits. They're made worthy entirely by the work of Jesus Christ. I thought it'd be a good opportunity because I was thinking about this, these faithful people and they're wearing the white robes and that got me thinking about a little further on. So I fast forwarded a little bit into Revelation chapter seven, where we see a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb, that's Jesus. Look at clothed in white robes, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Now the question comes, who are they? Who are, who are this? Who, what, what is this great multitude of people wearing white robes and, and calling this out to the throne? They are they, Revelation 7 says, they are they who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The only way to be made worthy is to be washed in the blood of Jesus Christ, to have our sins forgiven and expunged from our record, Jesus' life for ours. It is to believe in his death on the cross and to believe that he was resurrected from the dead. This is the only thing that can relieve us of our sin. This is the only thing that can make us worthy of standing before the Lord on that day and being with him for all eternity as his sons and daughters. And there were a few, a few in the church in Sardis who had this guarantee from Jesus Christ himself 
And if you're one of the people who needs to wake up and to get some things right with Jesus, one of the habits we talked about a few minutes ago was to start or keep connecting with the community of faith. The Apostle Paul, we're thinking about this, and the Apostle Paul quotes a poet. This is in 1 Corinthians 15, 33, but he quotes a, a, a Greek poet named Menander who said, bad company corrupts good character. It's a proverb. Bad company corrupts good character. If you're essentially a good person, you're always hanging around with bad people. Eventually, they're going to influence you and drag you down. If you're in a period of spiritual lethargy and you're only hanging around people who are uh, drawing you further away from Christ, that's the way it's going to be. Bad company corrupts good character. We could infer the reverse of that. Good company deters bad character. If instead you're hanging around with people who love Jesus, who are fully alive for him, part of the few declared worthy by Jesus, sins forgiven, that's going to that's gonna deter bad character and encourage good character in you. Now, this is a proverb. These are proverbs, and so they're generally accepted truths, not promises, not guarantees. In a majority of the situations, if you hang around bad people, it's going to be bad for you. If you hang around good people, it's going to be good for you. So the point is, as a principle... Get with people who are walking with Jesus and will encourage you to come along and walk with them. Get with the few. Get with those whose robes are washed in the blood. If you look at your life and you're having trouble living for the Lord, if you're having trouble being faithful, maybe even in a moment of raw honesty you would say, I'm a different person at church than I am at home or at work or in my neighborhood or with my friends or at school. In a moment of raw honesty, you would say, okay, I'm a hypocrite. And maybe the reason is that you've drifted from community with God's people. Perhaps the greatest tragedy of the last two years is that it took away all of our muscle memory around attending this place together and being at our small groups and serving on our serving teams. All of the places where we had contact points with other believers. We were in isolation. We were in lockdown. Life was harder. We felt stress. There were mental health issues. And we were away from each other. We lost the habit over those 24 or so months. It erased, it erased the habit of community for many. And we would all agree, Livestream was great as a lifeline, but not great in terms of the very thing that makes us the church. It resulted in, for many, not everyone, because some people still have legitimate reasons to be watching on the live stream. That's why we're so committed to it. But for some, and all of you can evaluate your own hearts before the Lord on this, for some, this put a spiritual lethargy inside of you, and you don't currently have a reason to not be here. I should be looking at the camera because y'all are here, and you're all going, well, at least I'm here today. 
And the hypocrisy rears its head because you're calling yourself a Jesus-loving Christian, but the disciplines of your life would indicate that there's little evidence of that. So it plays out in less frequent attendance in worship. It plays out in falling off from your small group and not serving on the team you once served on, not giving as you once gave to the mission that God has given to us in common. And if you want to overcome the hypocrisy of what your life has become, you need to wake up and get with people, uh, other believers in worship. You need to get back to your small group. And I understand I'm saying this, it's, it's mid-May and we're going into the summer. And a whole new set of excuses are going to be available to us. But we need to get back into community with one another, back on our serving teams, back in our small groups, even if it's just backyard barbecues, just get it done. Meet at the beach, meet at the park. All the other ways that we as Christians gather. All right, one more. You got it in you for one more? All right. Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, exposes our hypocrisy, so we must long to hear Jesus say our name. Do you long to hear Jesus say your name? I mean, this is so closely connected to anticipating His coming in the positive sense of His coming, but it goes beyond that because the, the coming of Jesus uh, simply inaugurates all the things that are going to happen in the last days. But when Jesus says our name, that's like the culmination of everything in the gospel that's awesome. At his coming, verse 5, the one who conquers, in this case, the one who wakes up, the one who casts off the mask, the one who conquers will, like the faithful few, be clothed thus in white garments. And Jesus says, so you're awesome, you get, these, you get these new clothes. And Jesus says, I will never blot his name out of the book of life. At least 10 to 12 times in different places in the scripture, we hear about this book of life. And if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you've had your sins forgiven, you have the assurance of your salvation. Your name went into that book. Revelation 17, 8 says, your name went into that book before the foundation of the world. If there's anything that would prove to us that salvation is not at all of our own merits, it is that before you drew a single breath, you were already chosen on the merits of Jesus Christ. Not at all on your own merits. So set and secure because it's accomplished by Jesus. And that's why we know it's entirely based on his merit, not on our own merit. Even more, I, it goes on, I will confess his name, Jesus says. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Recall back now to, to, to Romans 10, 9, where we confess Jesus is Lord. Now Jesus is before his father confessing our name. We confessed his. And now he confesses ours. He says our name before the throne. claims us as his own. He, he's pledging his devotion and loyalty to us. He vouches for us before the Father. And this is the only way we get in. 
These spiritual habits, as awesome as they might be in helping us get to know our God, those spiritual habits will not get you in. They merely point you to the one who can get you in. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 32, that whoever acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge him before the Father. We should long to hear Jesus say our name more than anything else. We should long to hear Jesus say our name. If I'm to be laser focused on one thing that's going to motivate everything else I do in life, it would be this, that Jesus would say my name before the Father. That I would be standing there and Jesus would come alongside and say, Father, this is Todd. Look, look at what he's wearing. White garments. Look, here in the book, his name's here. It's been there since before the creation. His sins are forgiven. My blood covered it. What else is there? It's nothing else. Nothing else that we should be pursuing but that moment in eternity. That's the gospel. That Jesus will confess your name before the Father. And so he or she, verse 6, he or she who has an ear have an ear or two? He or she who has an ear, let him or her hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Wake up. Let me pray for us. Father, we are um, counting on your Holy Spirit to work in this moment. Father, to in, in, in that mysterious, complex way. Father, you know every single person who's in this room. You knew everybody who was at 9 o'clock. Father, you know every person who's watching the live stream today and everyone who's going to watch this on demand. You know us intimately, down to the very depth of our souls. You know our thoughts. You know our intentions. And so, Father, when we think about that in your Holy Spirit working in power, God, I pray that, that you would pursue us with the truths that we've heard here today. That, God, as, as people leave today, in a figurative sense, they would be leaving their masks on their seats and on the floor and tossing them in the trash. The new determination from your Spirit to live genuinely, without hypocrisy, to wake up, to shed the spiritual lethargy, and to say, I'm all in for Jesus. I'm all in for Jesus saying my name before the Father. So God, do that work in each one of us. I pray in Christ's name, amen.